Our New Testament lesson today is found in Romans chapter 12, reading short verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to you and we give thanks for your revelation, the revelation that you've made in the works of your hands and all that you fashioned and formed in creation, and the revelation that you have given us in your word, your law. We confess that it is perfect, that it is sure, that all of your precepts are right, that they revive us, that they make us wise, that they rejoice our hearts that all of your commands are pure and that they enlighten us and give us life. And so, God, we ask this morning as we come that your word would be sweeter than honey, that it would be better than any worldly possession to us. We pray that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In his novel, The Painted Veil, Somerset Mom tells the story of a young English couple who moves to the Far East to China. The young couple's name is Walter and Kitty Fane. Walter is a steady, boring type, a medical doctor. Kitty is a debutante social climber. They weren't exactly well matched because Walter was head over hills for Kitty And Kitty was really disinterested, but it was a marriage of convenience. Kitty quickly grows tired of Walter. She engages in an extramarital affair and crushes Walter's spirit. He ends up moving inland to give his life, actually sacrificing himself, and treating patients with cholera. In the wake of this, Kitty is suddenly brought to a realization She sees her superficiality, and she sees her shallowness. At the same time, she also sees the sacrificial nature of the church around her that was serving the needs of the many victims of the outbreak of cholera in the area. She begins to understand her problem and her predicament. She visits a local convent where the sisters are caring for impoverished cholera patients, and she offers herself to their service, and the head sister accepts her into the convent, but then she wisely says this to her. She says, you know, my dear child, that one cannot find peace in work or peace in pleasure in the world or in a convent, but only in one's soul. It's at this moment in the novel where Kitty is really broken in half. She's cut to the heart. She's awakened to the reality of God's grace, that there's forgiveness and new life. It's really a beautiful story, and it's not a story that simply belongs in Mom's novel, but it's a story that's known here at Christ Church as well. That same grace that Mom writes about is the grace that Many of us can testify too as well. It's the grace that awakens and forgives and renews and brings new life. 
whether that grace came to be known as a young child or as a teenager or perhaps even later in life, our sanctuary today is full of those who testify to the reality of that grace that is ours in Jesus. When it comes to intersect our lives in the middle of broken and difficult situations, And that raises then one critical question that we have to answer. What now? (laughs) After we've been intersected by that grace, Kitty was asking the question, what now? And for all of us, it's the most pertinent question that we can ask. When we've been awakened by the grace of God, what now? How do we respond? And Psalm 19 provides us with instruction about what that response exactly looks like. The psalm closes with a prayer. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so David is asking that the words of his mouth, the meditations of his mind, this was a way in the original of saying all of my life, may everything about me be acceptable to you, God, my rock, and my redeemer. It's important to note that word acceptable comes from Leviticus chapter 22 in talking about offerings that were pleasing to God. That is pure and whole offerings. And so what David is asking is that his whole life would be an acceptable offering to God. Now, it's important to clarify something here because, you see, David wasn't trying to barge his way into God's presence based on his own acumen, based on his own achievements, or based on his own accolades. He had no such sense that he could put a claim on God by being good enough. Okay, So he was not asking that God would shine him up so he could earn his way into heaven that he could make an acceptable sacrifice to God. No, David has already recognized here that God is his rock and his redeemer. He has been intersected by the grace of God. It is the grace of God that adopts him and brings him into the family. And now that he's been awakened to all of that grace, he asks that his life would then be a pleasing sacrifice, that his life would be laid out in the service of God. And friends, this is the what now. It is the sacrificial offering of the self to God because God in Jesus has given us everything. He is our rock. He is our redeemer. And so let the words of my mouth, let the uh, the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you. This is the what now of the Christian life. And Psalm 19, running up to this final prayer, reveals three resources that are then to inform that sacrificial life, that life of a sacrificial offering to God. You could think of it as three reservoirs that are then to fund that sacrificial life. And so this morning, we'll look at these three things, meditation on the witness of creation, meditation on the wisdom of God in Scripture, and finally, confession of our sinful weakness. The Psalm 19 guides us into this sacrificial life, telling us that that sacrificial life is funded and resourced by these three things. So briefly, ahead of coming to the Lord's table this morning, let's look at these, each of these. First, 
meditation on the witness of creation. In verses 1 through 6, we learn that the world, all that God made, the works of his hands, are like a theater. And they, they are a theater that testifies to the glory of God. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This is a way of drawing the extremes and the poles and saying everything testifies to the glory of God. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. It doesn't stop. Day and night, all of God's works are radiating in, test within their testimony to his glory and greatness. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their works to the end of the world. The creation is full of this testimony. And so the visible world gains a voice. It becomes vocal, testifying to God because it is a work of God. And the main challenge for us in our own broken condition and in our sinfulness and preoccupations is to ask the question, are we attuned to that revelation? Do we receive it and do we hear it? This summer while we were in Switzerland, I was reminded of the difficulty it, there is for each of us in paying attention to the revelation of God's majesty and his glory in all the works of his hands. One afternoon when we were in the Lauterbrunnen Valley, the entire valley was covered through with clouds. You couldn't see more than five feet. There was nothing to be seen. But yet I knew that just there was one of the most terrific vistas I'd ever seen of the Jungfrau region. Peak after peak. Glorious things. Waterfalls plunging thousands of feet. Glorious beauty. And yet I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see beyond five feet. But it didn't change the reality that all of that vista was still there. It was still present. And friends, the difficulty for all of us is that so often we are clouded in. Everything is right there to be taken in. But yet just simply in our minds with our preoccupations, with all the things that distract us, with all the things that are more important, that we shut down and don't consider the things that are just there before us that are there to be received. Because you see, the revelation of God in the works of his hands, the Bible is saying that that is not lacking. What is lacking is our reception of it. It is our mind that is fogged in. We turn away from it. We dull it. We don't listen. It's important for us to consider, though, what happens when we do take in the revelation of God through the works of his hands. Perhaps you've had the experience of standing in front of something so beautiful or witnessing something so miraculous inside of the creation where it's just overwhelming and you're overcome by it. Certainly is a part of human life. But what is it that God wants to produce in us when we reach that moment of awe and majesty? There are many things that could be said, but chiefly where the Bible points as to what is to be happening in us, in that moment where we recognize the testimony of creation, is that we're to reflect on God's power, His infinite great power in fashioning and forming all this and upholding it, 
and also on God's benevolence and his goodness and kindness to all the works of his hands. And that these two are then to direct us to one thing, our creaturely dependence. Paul says that it is in God that we live and that we move and that we have our being. He is our origin and our source, and he is the one who sustains us now. And so we are to live in that sense of dependence and all of the works of creation are to remind us of all of our fragility and all of the greatness of God. This is what is to be happening. This is what the creation desires to induce. This is how God designed it. That that theater of his glory would be drawing you to that creaturely dependence and to that greatness of God out in front of you. Now, the modern world has done most everything it can to strip away from us the sense of wonder with the world around it. Everywhere we can, we dissect the world, we break it apart, we study it, and we use it. That is often how we learn to relate to the world. Rather than simply taking it in and absorbing it on that broader level and receiving God's good gifts in it, we, we, we relate to it on a more atomistic level where we break it apart and examine it and study it. Augustine compares two types of knowledge. Several thousand, almost several thousand years ago now, recognizing this problem. He says there are two types of knowledge of creation it's in his confessions. Listen to what he says. A man who knows that he owns a tree and gives thanks to you, that's to God, for its fruit, even though he may not know how many cubits high it is, or how wide it spreads, is better than one who measures it and counts all its branches, but does not own it and does not know or love its creator. Did you catch what he's saying? That the one who owns a tree and receives its fruit with thankfulness is wiser than the one who knows everything there is scientifically to know about the tree who knows its branches, who has measured it out, who knows how photosynthesis works, who knows what year will be a bumper crop and not, that actually the one who has the tree and receives its fruit with thankfulness knows more about the tree than the one who scientifically understands it. And friends, this is how creation was designed. Yes, we are permitted to study it and examine it, but we have no permission ever to divorce it from its design and end, which was to induce us to praise God, to see his great power, to see his benevolence, and to see our creaturely dependence that he's the one who upholds us as creator and sustainer. And friends, the life that is given to God in sacrificial worship is to be informed by this meditation on the greatness of God's works in creation. It's the first reservoir. Now, the second is that this life of sacrificial worship also involves meditation on God's wisdom in Scripture. As you transition in the psalm, in verse 7, running down into verse 11, you'll find that the subject shifts. Now we move from creation being the source of revelation, and we move to this word law. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, 
enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. These verses 7 through 9, there are six descriptions of the law with a piling up of synonyms for the word law in which the law is praised. And then there are pairs that belong to each of the synonyms which give a benefit that matches the description. Six descriptions, six benefits. And this word law is important to get right. It's not simply referring to the Ten Commandments, and it's not referring to just the negative function of the law to convict us of our sins. But rather in the Old Testament, and especially here in Psalm 19, the word law simply refers to God's revealed will. It refers to all that God has revealed about himself. And so God is here speaking of the goodness of all of his wisdom that comes to us in Scripture. The psalm exalts the virtues, the benefits, and the desirability of God's revelation. Because it is in God's revelation that we learn of God's gracious ways with us in Jesus. His ways in which he makes the simple wise through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We learn of his design and intent for humanity within the creation. That is what it looks like for us to flourish. He gives that to us. It's here that we learn of the boundaries that he graciously assigns us in his commandments. That he doesn't just give us arbitrary commandments that are designed to test us to see if we'll really follow after him. But rather his commandments are given to us and they are designed to lead us into flourishing. They're for our good. Here it's also that we learn of our great weakness and how we've turned against him. We learn of the tragedy of what it is to be a human lost in sin. And here it also, inside of this great law, all of this instruction, this revealed will, we learn of his great plans to renew all things when our Lord Jesus returns. And so, yes, this law is perfect. Yes, this testimony is sure. Yes, the precepts of the Lord are right. Yes, the commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. And the rules of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. That is, this scripture is the revelation of all of God's wisdom. And it's here for us. And Psalm 19 is drawing us into meditation upon all this rich reality that we would saturate ourselves in it, that we would desire it more than we desire money, that we would desire it more than we desire fine food and good drink, that we would seek it out above everything else in life because it's more important and more precious. Just as God reveals himself in the works of creation, even more so, he reveals himself in his word And this is the reservoir of wisdom, and we are to drink deeply from it. It's not simply to be a book upon the shelf. It's not simply to be a book upon the coffee table. It's not just to be a warm sentiment, that this is the source of life, is what Psalm 19 is arguing, and that we are to draw down upon God's wisdom, and it is that wisdom that he has revealed that will inform that life of a sacrificial offering to God. And finally, verses 12 and 13, the final reservoir, the final resource, 
for a life of sacrificial worship involves confession of our sinful weakness. Verse 12, question is asked, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. In the history of this psalm, these verses are actually typically overlooked. They are overshadowed by the first two sections and then the final verse. But it's important to recognize that in this life of sacrificial worship, there's something very profound being acknowledged here. And it's that we must realize that we, in and of ourselves, do not have the resources to know ourselves. Who can discern his errors? When we are being asked that question, we are not to raise our hand. We're not to volunteer ourselves and say, yes, I possess that wisdom. Because the human heart is so incredibly deceitful. The rhetorical answer is that no one can discern all of their answers. And so the psalmist then prays, declare me innocent from hidden faults. He is acknowledging that there are things that he has done that are wrong. There are transgressions and there are trespasses, things that he has erred into that he cannot see and does not know. And friends, this is always part of the life that is offered to God is recognizing our sin and our sinful capacities, to, recognizing, to recognize the overwhelming nature of that. And so we must ask that God forgive us from our faults that are hidden from our view. And this is part of sacrificial worship, is this kind of humility. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just recognize that he doesn't have the resources to know himself fully. He goes further and recognizes that he also doesn't have the capacity to control himself. Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. He's asking here for God's help. He feels all of his weakness, not just that he can't know all of his sins, but also that there are certain sins that he will commit because he lacks control. This is the power and nature of sin too. And friends, when it comes to a life that's yielded and presented to God, it's not about having it all together. It's not about being perfect, but it is recognizing all of our sinful weakness and in our capacities and in our hidden errors and in our lack of control. And it's yielding ourselves to God and crying out to him, calling upon him for help. And it's the person who draws down on those three reservoirs, meditating on the works of God in creation, meditating on the wisdom of God revealed in Scripture, the person who acknowledges all of their sinful weakness is the one who draws down from those three great resources that will find a life of sacrificial worship funded by the resources that God has given to them. And let that be true of us. Over the past several weeks, we've looked at what it looks like to engage, especially in communal worship. On the Sabbath, gathered together as God's people, what it means to offer ourselves to him. 
Psalm, 119, Psalm 19 drives us and draws us in the direction of what it means to go out from the Sabbath, what it means to go into daily life, offering ourselves sacrificially to God. And these are the resources that you desperately need. Hearing God's works in creation, being attuned to them, not fogged in, hearing God's wisdom in Scripture and gladly receiving it as good as what makes you wise. Then also acknowledging all of your sinful capacities, that sin is not something that just you used to do, but it's present with you. Friends, these are the resources we need. These are the reserves. Let's ask God for his help.